a small white cross. It looks rather like the war graves in France, which the French tend so beautifully. It's a small white cross. That's it. See where the mould is? I'm just wondering if that can be cleaned off. Someone's left some flowers there. I wonder who that was. It's very kind. There should be two hours in resurrection. Do you see that? Never mind, we'll see. Germany calling. Germany calling. Germany calling. Here are the Reichsender Ambush, Station Bremen and Station DXB on the 31-meter band. You are about to hear our news in English. Well, I'm here in the chapel in, in Barrowmore Cemetery, Galway, where my father's remains were reinterred in August 1976. Um... I began the campaign to have my father's remains reburied in Ireland after the late 1950s. I was married and I was walking through Chatham Cemetery one day, which is a particularly beautiful cemetery in Kent, England, above the river, and I noticed how well arranged it was, the trees and the plants and the walks, and I wished that my father could be buried in a cemetery which was similar to it instead of in a prison yard. I felt that he had suffered the end of his life and we in England, his family and friends, had been very sorry about his ending, wishing that he had never gone to Germany just before the war and could have stayed in England where he would have been safer. I wrote to the Home Office and I received several replies saying that they were considering my request to have his remains exhumed and reburied in Ireland, which was considered also to be a very safe place. Our parish priest agreed with me in thinking that it may be dangerous to have him reburied in England. The grave could be vandalized by people who were angry or prejudiced against the part he took during the war, his work for the Germans. I received courteous replies from the government and at last I did have permission in the 1970s to rebury my father's remains. Thus it is impossible for Mr. Churchill and his military subordinates to plead that surprise alone accounts for their discomfiture and the peril to which they have exposed luckless England. Surprised, of course, they may well be by the new methods of fighting and the terrible weapons, mysterious weapons, which Germany has evolved. There are more surprises of an unpleasant nature to come, but in general it must be maintained that this is no snap defeat for the Allies. It is the first stage of their military liquidation. Well, my grandfather, Michael Joyce, was born in County Mayo in a farm near Ballinrobe. And in those days, many people were, were emigrating to America. And when he was 20 years old, he went to New York 
and he was he made money and saved. He was in the building business. He helped lay the Pennsylvanian Railway, and he used to come back sometimes to Ireland on holiday. He came back one year, and he met my grandmother, Emily Brooke. She was on a holiday with her father, a doctor. Dr. Brooke liked to go fishing in Ireland. He had Irish connections. And they decided to correspond. And my grandfather returned to America, New York. And my grandmother wrote to him. They wrote to each other. And he proposed over the post and decided that they were going to get married. And she went over with her brother Edgar and they were married in May and they went to live at Herkimer Street in Brooklyn and that's where my father was born in April 1906. Business was going well in New York but there were certain leanings. Oh no, my grandmother thought it was a bit far from England and my grandfather felt that he'd saved enough money to go back to Ireland and so they decided they would leave America and my grandfather went back first by ship of course in those days and my grandmother followed with little William who was three years old at the time and when they came to County Mayo my grandfather had bought up a pub in Westport, but it was very, very dusty. There were spiders in all corners of the rooms, and the little lad was very frightened and kept pointing at the spiders and said to his mother that he didn't like them at all. They didn't keep the pub for very long. They made good business there and came to Galway, where my grandfather settled at Salt Hill, Rutledge Terrace. And uh, my father tells me, told us that he used to go to St. Ignatius College to school and he was fond of Latin and English. When we were at school, as you know, we were in class together. Yes. Well, there were three of us, uh, the brilliant members of the class. Yes. Willie Joyce and I and Hugo Keller. And uh, do you know that little lane that connects St. Mary's Road with Taylor's Hill, just behind the school. Yes. Well, we used to go to Morris Conway, a teacher out there, in the evenings for a grind. And invariably, after the grind, we'd take a ramble around, we'd go up Taylor's Hill or go down to the canal or someplace. And we were very, very intimate. You know. The Blackingtons were, uh, were uh, the auxiliaries, we called them then. Yes. Uh, they were uh, situated in um, Lenaboy Castle. You know, we're that place on Taylor's Hill. And uh, Willie used to have a, a, used to give him a lunch up there, although he was on a schoolboy. On one occasion he, had, a, he, he, he uh, had lunch up there. And he was common enough driving around. They had what they called crossly tenders. Yes. They're the things used to patrol around it. And Willie would be sitting in the front seat beside the driver. That shocked Not the neighbours, I understand. Hmm? The neighbours were very shocked. Oh, very shocked. Oh, very shocked. And they, I'm afraid they probably thumped him for information. Yeah, 
Yes. Because they didn't know the country, they didn't know the layout, they didn't know the plans of the Sinn Féin. And they possibly plied my father with questions and he was mm. ready to answer them. Mm. And that's why the people of Galway were so angry. And what we oh, understood yes. was that which was a ter- terrible thing to do, to, to consort with the British forces. Yes. Terrible. Yes. My grandfather was told that he was expected to leave. He was given a few weeks' notice hmm. by the um, pro-Irish people, you know, the party. Oh, yes, I believe he was. And that is why I believe they left, he was. because they feared for the life of my yes, father. Yes, I believe he was. Yes, yes. Hmm. Well, there was something in, in William Joyce that made him reject what he came out of, um, to reject that uh, family background. The curious thing about him is that um, his mother's family came from um, the north of Ireland. The family name was Brooke, um, so that he had that um, strange connection into the north. Um, But by and large, he had this deep need to reject and to annihilate his background, what he came from. So that um, I think that this comes out of the family, or whether it's the mother or the father, I'm not sure, but that in, they would have been a family who were unionist, loyalist, and... Um, um, it wasn't just William Joyce himself, it was the family appeared to have that kind of commitment. Uh, so that his involvement with the Black and Tans uh, was a kind of, a, uh, I suppose in a way, um, an expression of that loyalism. But it was also an attraction to the uniform and to the physical violence which that occupying army Uh, represented in in Galway in that period. Uh, I think that Joyce, like a lot of fascists, was uh, at some kind of um, deep animal level, was attracted to uniforms and guns and to uh, military power. Um, So there was all of that in a young young kid around Galway. You know, there was a, a kind of excitement in it. And the excitement had to do with power and terror and bloodshed. And all of that was part of the fascist mystique. Good evening. Good evening. Um, Come on in. Very welcome. Hello. I'm Eamon. Hello. I'm Antoinette. Antoinette. You're very welcome. Thank you. In here to the right. In here. So you want to have a look at the house of my grandparents originally. My grandfather Michael lived here in the earlier part of the century with my grandmother Emily. They had four children then. There was William, Frank, Quentin, and Joan. And then they had another younger child afterwards, Robert, and they all went back to England at the time of the Troubles. The Troubles, okay. About 1920. Okay. Introduce yourself. I'm Harry Doyle, and uh, my father bought a house next door from Willie's father. 
Oh, from Michael Joyce. That's right. Correct. Oh, that's right. How interesting that is. That is true. And um, the um, we used to listen to him every night on the uh, Germany calling. Germany calling. Yes, it was ent- the war. entertainment in a sense. Well, it was news and it was entertainment. Yes. And also, um, one night he asked for everybody in Rockburton. Did he? He did. And maybe the transcript of that is still available or not. He asked for everybody in Salt Hill and how were all the folks in Rockburton and Rutley Chairs. Oh, I didn't know that. And we were absolutely stuck to the chairs. Yes, of course. (laughs) Unexpected. There weren't too many radios at the time, but um, my father bought a Philco radio to listen to the Spanish Civil War uh, uh, broadcast. And then we could get America on it, actually, with a big aerial he had across from... You see, all Rockburton Park was only trees then. And so we could listen to the voice of America. And um, But every night at uh, around nine o'clock or whatever, uh, we listened to the German uh, station. And he always started off with Germany calling, Germany calling, Germany calling. And then he used to ring a ship's bell, dong, 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 dong. And that was the, the thousands of tons of shipping that the U-boats had sunk that day. So that was the start. And then he went to talk about Mr. Horrible Leish and all the British government and all that crack, you know. And that was basically it. (laughs) And they gave the... They bombed London, the Brits bombed Dresden or whatever. Mm. It was just a news broadcast after that. But that dong-dong on the ship's bell was something else. And every two dongs meant 20,000 tonnes of shipping sunk that day by the, by the U-boats, you know. I didn't know that. Oh, yes, that, was, that was a fact. After I'd done my homework, I was yeah. a girl growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was a contact with my father, a link. Oh, um, it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think everybody in Ireland listened. Now, whether they liked him or didn't like him, that's another story. I mean... <laughs> It was up to each individual. <laughs> but I would say, if I was British, I would have really hated the man. Yes. Because, I, I mean, mothers, fathers, wives listening to this and their sons and daughters were out there being killed. Yes. You know, or sunk. And, yes. you know, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been nice. To us here in Ireland, it was impersonal, really, because we weren't yes. in the war, you know. I always so, said afterwards they needn't listen, they could have switched off or turned to another station. But no, they, because he had a fantastic command of the English language for yes. a start. Absolutely. I'd say himself and Churchill were probably both equal in that one. Oh, but, Churchill uh, was wonderful. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. He, made, he really gave us courage. Oh, yes. But um, he, was, he, was, he had a lovely voice. And, and um, you know, you'd listen to him anyway. And he might come out with something like, how is everybody in Salt Hill, which he did, and mm, like that, you know. I did not know that. Oh, no, he did, yes. Oh, how marvellous. Well, the thing about um, the German propaganda was that um, the 1930s was the great period of radio. 
which is the period where uh, radio became the central mass media of the time. And um, Goebbels in Germany uh, was the first one really to see the potential of this. You know, you had radio and you had the mass meetings, and these were the two great sources of control over uh, large populations used by the Nazis. And in uh, the um, German radio service, you had a whole series of departments who broadcast uh, um, to the world at large in different languages. So you had an English language section, you had an Indian section, you had a French section, you had an Italian section. And in these sections you had broadcasters who were Nazi sympathisers who had come from the other countries. And uh, Joyce found himself being recruited by Goebbels um, for the English language section, along with a lot of other um, uh, English language uh, speakers who were in Germany for one reason or another with a degree of sympathy towards uh, Nazi Germany. And the significance about Joyce was that Joyce rose to the very top and he proved to be a superb broadcaster. Uh, he had this kind of strange mixture of sardonic humour, of ideology, of storytelling, um, of uh, a kind of an actor's skill in influencing the listener. Uh, and his broadcasts were um, very, very powerful. I remember as a child listening to Lord Haha on the radio. Uh, but I do know that in Ireland, particularly in rural Ireland, a great number of people listened to him simply because they thought of him as somebody who had come from Galway. And there would have been uh, there would have been a certain amount of pro-German feeling involved as well. But um, he had enormous range of skills in assembling material and in influencing people. We believe that the British people are already wishing they had never entrusted their faith to the warmongers who rule them. But that which has been done is a fact. Opportunities of peace were present until it was clear that they would never be taken. And that is why we had recourse to the arbitrament of the sword. The sword of a Europe reborn. <laughs> yeah. That is the end of our news and talk. Well, it's all very you, interesting. Did you know him uh, for how many years? Did you? I was live? seven when I last saw him. Just going on seven, I was nearly seven, and yet I remember him very vividly it's from the time I was about two years old. Yes. And what, and what happened when you were seven? Did he move away from the family? Oh, the marriage broke up, unfortunately. You know, we were 20th century and divorce was available and uh, there was temptation there and my mother and he used to have arguments and I think she was rather put on a bit because he was in this political movement, British Union of Fascists, mm. but all the people coming in and out of the house, you know, when we didn't give her much peace, we weren't yeah. on our own anymore, as we had been when he was a tutor, with just a few mm. friends in. Yeah. The house was full of people coming in and out, especially at night time. They'd stay and they'd have parties, and mm. my sister and I would come down in the morning and look at the glasses of wine and drink the drinks the drinks <laughs> they've been having fun the grown ups you know and tell me this um, 
during the war, did you listen to the broadcast as well? Yes, um, it was a way of keeping in touch with my father. I hadn't seen him mm. since I was seven, yes. so by the time I was so you, you 13 heard him or 14. Every night. Not every night, but when I'd finished my homework, it would be mm. something mm. to do. Mm. Even my mother would tune in sometimes. Of course, yeah, yes, yes. She'd say, oh, Will, I've, she used to call him Will. I've heard all this before, all this before. Mm. I think the anti-Semitism really uh, was part of the whole kind of uh, fascist uh, ideology and that uh, it was part of a very elaborate theory of civilization, uh, of economics and of economic power um, and this notion in fact that uh, you had an international Jewish conspiracy which was controlling everything um, so that, in a way, anti-Semitism um, grew out of the local, the local fear, the local anxieties. Um, the Jew was seen to be um, another or the other, the dangerous other um, outsider, who was threatening the kind of purity of the local, the local uh, civilization. Um, so that there was that, um, and in in effect, the way in which fascists expressed themselves and anti-Semitism was that they were talking about a kind of a non-human. It ceased to be a human thing at all. It was something else. It was some kind of, um, you know, a kind of monster that uh, had to be put down. Yes, I was told by somebody, a friend, mm. whose sister was working on the Daily Express for Lord Beaver oh. book to oh. house right out in the country away from the bombing during the war. Mm -hmm. She was a personal secretary typing away. Mm -hmm. She was a Jewish girl, Lord Beaverbrook. Mm. And they were talking about William Joyce and the broadcast. Somebody in the office, I'm not sure who it was, invented the name Lord Hochul. Thought it would be a ridiculous title to give him, so that people wouldn't be quite so frightened of the speeches. All right. So they thought it would make the public yes. laugh; it would boost yes. the morale. Yes. Mm. I thought yes. it, 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 his name might have come from the fact that he had this accent. Oh, yes. Also, accent. that's yes. what gave him the name. Yes. So that's where it originated. And of course, he was rather anti-Jewish, which was a, was a shame mm. in the light of present-day thinking. And in his book, Twilight Over England, which I thought would be all about the war and the raid, but wasn't, it was about England before the war, he gives a list of the Jews who've received titles for their services to the nation, who've been <coughs> knighted, they weren't mm. hereditary titles, they were mm. bestowed on mm. for various reasons. Mm. And I've said ever since that, well, my father had a title freely bestowed on him by the nation. <laughs> <laughs> and girls at my school where I was teaching, he would ask me, are you a princess? I heard about my father being Lord Hall. You are of the aristocracy, are you not? People have asked. It's rather funny. <laughs> yes. Who is the chap who hits the high spot? The greatest comedian now of the lot. The definite radio star number one. The life of the party, the bundle of fun. 
Lord Hawhaw, the humbug of Hamburg. The bloke with the tonsils and tones. His homburg he raises in Hamburg. His top lip is quite overgrown. And yet in the winter it's rather pathetic. He's frozen to death cause his pants are synthetic. Lord Hawhaw, the humbug of Hamburg. The comic of And because everyone was laughing at him and called him Lord Hoho and put on a vaudeville show, Hoho, in London, I wanted to hear his jokes. At home he had been very funny. He often used to make me laugh. But I didn't hear many jokes. I only heard one, I think, or two. Um, one evening he said, now the English must be better off because they're wearing shoes made out of leather instead of cardboard. And I started to laugh at that because, of course, we'd never worn shoes made out of cardboard. We'd only had cardboard inside our shoes. And then he, in rather a humorous tone, he referred to the American statesman Harry Hopkins. Mr. Harry Hopkins! He, he, he said rather quizzically, and I laughed at that. And I didn't find anything else particularly funny. He had been very funny indeed, as my daddy, you see. Lord the humbug of Hamburg. He strolls to his club with a grid. His spats are the largest in Hamburg. This monocled male mannequin. The fatherland factories, he says, are in clover. We'll give him the works if he ever comes over. Lord Hawhaw, the humbug of Hamburg, the babbling burk of Berlin. This is Germany calling so bing to Laro. Thank you for listening. From the beginning, he was rather sinister. At the end, if anyone listens to his broadcast, it's rather pathetic. He knows that the might of Germany has been broken, yet only temporarily, and uh, he's, he, he makes his farewell. He says his voice won't be heard again for many months, and one feels a little sorry for him. This evening, I am talking to you about... Germany. That is a concept that many of you may have failed to understand. Let me tell you that in Germany there still remains the spirit of unity and the spirit of strength. Let me tell you that here we have a united people who are modest in their wishes. They are not imperialists. They don't want to take what doesn't belong to them. All they want is to live their own simple lives, undisturbed by outside influences. That is the Germany that we know. I speak now personally. 
I want to talk to you of what I know and what I feel. I have always hoped and believed that in the last resort there would be an alliance, a combine, an understanding between England and Germany. Well, at the moment, that seems impossible. Good. If it cannot be, then I can only say that the whole of my work has been in vain. And therefore I say to you, in these last words, you may not hear from me again for a few months. I say, Es liebe Deutschland. Heil Hitler. And farewell. Well, the, uh, there are actually a couple of accounts, different accounts of uh, his arrest. But very briefly what happened was that uh, he was provided with false papers, um, false Danish identity, and he and Margaret headed for the Danish border. Um, and they were accosted by uh, the British Army. And um, the story then goes that uh, one version of it is that uh, his voice was recognised by one of the English soldiers, but I don't know whether that's true or not. It's, it's a nice kind of detail. Uh, but whatever um, the, the story which uh, is apparently based on fact is that uh, when he was stopped, he went to reach inside for his um, identity papers and they thought he was reaching for a gun and he was shot. They shot him in the leg. So he was brought back to England uh, as a kind of um, a wounded invalid and um, um, put on trial. Um I mean, the situation in Germany as the war uh, came to a conclusion uh, was totally chaotic. And um, I think that Joyce really um, was trying, as it were, to uh, to kind of change sides again. Um, he would have been quite happy, I think, if he were able to get back into England and be accepted in some fashion. Uh, I know that that sounds crazy, but um, um, when you're somebody locked into a kind of fascist dream world like that, um, anything can happen. He did, in fact, see himself, as I was saying, uh, as a kind of um, an ultra-Englishman. And his going to Germany was, in a way, uh, an attempt to kind of bring England with him. He always believed in a kind of unity of um, England and Germany, which, of course, Hitler hoped for too. Um, and um, his uh, capture and his trial then must have been a profound trauma to him, you know. We went to the cinema, uh, local cinema, and when the news uh, film came on, newsreel film, black and white, it was reported that William Joyce had landed in England with his escort and he was limping along and I recognised him instantly, dear old daddy, wearing his casual clothes, and I knew he'd been limping because he had been shot. And I did have this foreboding 
about his being hanged because people were talking about that possibility already. I thought it could happen. Well, there was a huge hysteria um, in England at the time. Uh, Joyce was one of of a number of um, fascists who um, were arrested at that time and tried. Um, And the general atmosphere in Britain was one that sought revenge. You know, it's like at the end of any war and uh, when people start to kind of tot up the... um, you know, the brutal treatment and the savagery that they've gone through. Um, they look then for kind of, um, um, they look for, for revenge. Uh, so that there was, that, that was the atmosphere that surrounded the trial. At the time, I accepted that British justice couldn't be making any mistake, that Hartley Shawcross must be right. My father had parade, wrapped himself in the Union Jack parading as British and I, with a British passport, had acted so. Therefore, they were judging him to be British, although I knew perfectly well that he was an American citizen. I was a little bit disappointed in the Americans not coming forward and trying to give evidence that he had been an American citizen, hence explaining the reason for his divided loyalty. And I found out afterwards that when he... My father became a German citizen, which is counted as treason under British law. America had not yet entered the war. And so he changed from being an American citizen to a German citizen before America entered the war. I thought that was a little unfair, but I still accepted it as British justice, and I thought that death was inevitable for him until I was much older, in my 20s. And I began to think that perhaps they had dealt rather hard with my father and that, as my friends have put it, a term of imprisonment would have been a fairer sentence rather than death for him. Just to show that, you know, that he should have repented for being on the wrong side because we didn't think that Hitler was right in what he did. I I, th- I see the execution as one of the kind of ironies that you get in wartime, uh, in that uh, Joyce was born in America, and this was his claim actually in in the um, trial, um, his his attempt to get himself free. Um, but he was born in America and, um, strictly speaking, shouldn't have been executed. Um, the, he was condemned to death and then he appealed to the House of Lords and in the appeal, um, two of the judges voted um, for acquittal and two for execution. And then apparently one of the judges changed. So he had a 3-1 in favour of execution and the Lord Chancellor was the kind of deciding casting vote. Uh, So that it was very close to the edge. And uh, one of the things to remember about it was that uh, um, you had a certain element in English society which was uh, leaning towards fascism in the 30s. So that the the whole Mosley movement wasn't a kind of bizarre, eccentric thing. It had a lot of kind of prominent support. 
uh, and this support obviously became less as the war proceeded. Um, but Joyce, I think, always felt that he was um, a true Englishman in a strange kind of way. Um, it goes back to that kind of mixed up kind of national identity that he had. But to the very end, I think he actually uh, felt that he was being loyal to some kind of ideal of England, uh, even though England executed him uh, and uh, in the process made him English because uh, that was the irony of his execution, that uh, um, they denied his American birth in order to execute him. This letter was written on Christmas Day, 1945, to Margaret Joyce, my father's second wife. At that time, everyone was enjoying the turkey and the Christmas pudding and the nuts and oranges afterwards and the talk, whilst my father was in prison, knowing that his neck was going to be stretched like one of the, the one, okay, like one of the turkeys. It must have been very grim for him. And he wrote this letter. I am very anxious that you should go to Galway and see the docks, Long Walk, O'Brien's Bridge, Nile Lodge, Taylor's Hill, Lenaby Castle, Menlock on the Corrib, but above all the stretch from Salt Hill to Black Rock, the promenade where we used to live behind. It had been my cherished dream to take you there myself, but I can still walk with you in the spirit there, look out towards Aran Islands, draw in the Atlantic air, gaze on the rocks where I romped in my boyhood, first gaining that glimpse mysteriously of the infinite, which is now so dear to me. What a saga my life would make! And now... On these last days, I'm nearest to my boyhood again. I can see the meanness, the injustice, the iniquity of many of my non-political acts. I know my faults, and I'm sorry that I have made others, you in particular, suffer for them. At least I am painfully aware of my own former smallness in personal dealings. Nymph, in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. Christmas Day, 1945. We're here in Salt Hill on a bright April morning. We're on the seafront, hearing the waves lapping against the shore and thinking of the ocean stretching as far as the Americas, um, where many, so many immigrated, also from the Joyce family in the last century. And... It, they are very, my father had very nostalgic memories of this scene facing County Clare and the Isle of Arran and the rocks and the seashore and the days before he left this earth. Before my father died, I'd purchased a record of Gili singing Eluce van le Stelle, The Stars Were Shining. 
from Tosca. And it was rather a coincidence because my father, like the, the character in that opera, had been sentenced to death. And the song, of course, expresses his thoughts on the night before his execution. And the sound of the music used to flow out into the garden of our Sussex home in the country, across the lawn, on, of an evening. Sandpaper. Sandpaper? Yeah. Wire brush and sandpaper. Perhaps oh, I ought to buy some. Sandpaper on a wire brush. Oh. Scrub it with. I'm just scrubbing it with water and bleach at the moment. Yeah. Sandpaper on a wire brush. Oh. I wonder, we wondered which agent to use for cleaning it. You put the bleach on more, a lot stronger than what it is. Don't yeah. put it in water. Put it on virtually neat and just scrub it into the stone and leave it on for the night. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just put the bleach on the knee, onto the yes. stone and scrub it into the stone and leave it overnight. Yeah. Them curves are white. Them curves are the same colour as the headstone. Yes. They're white curves. See them they should be, yes. Uh, they're completely dirty. You'll have to do the name then as well, like. I'll have to come over and do, do it again, like. Do the name over again. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. So it's all over again. I mean, the name's all right as far as I'm concerned. Look, it's coming up whiter already. Ah, to 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 take a lot of work done now to get that. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other documentary on one productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.